Society of Lincoln Center, you're listening to The Close-Up. Each week we bring you in-depth conversations with some of the biggest names in filmmaking. It's April 20th, 2016. I'm Michael Odemark, one of the show's producers. Today we're sharing a recent free talk with actor-director John Favreau. Since his breakthrough comedy Swingers, Favreau has enjoyed an illustrious career on both sides of the camera. He's appeared in comedies like Four Christmases and I Love You Man, and directed both big-budget action films like Iron Man and smaller independent movies like Chef. His latest film is a live-action adaptation of Kipling's classic The Jungle Book, which features the voices of Bill Murray, Ben Kingsley, Scarlett Johansson, and more. Playing Mowgli is newcomer Neil Seti, who made a surprise appearance at the talk to the delight of the audience. Our ongoing free talk series is sponsored by HBO. For more information, check out filmlink.org free. Let's go now to our conversation with John Favreau. Join us in celebrating the remarkable career of Morgan Freeman at the 43rd Annual Chaplin Award Gala on Monday, April 25th. Freeman will be honored by his friends and collaborators, including Helen Mirren, Danny Glover, Robert De Niro, and Matthew Broderick. The annual gala is the Film Society of Lincoln Center's largest fundraising event, helping to support our ongoing work in education, artist development, and cross-cultural film outreach. Tickets to the star-studded event are now on sale. Visit filmlink.org gala for more information. Hello. All right. That was actually a very good indicator of what the last three years of my life has been like. <laughs> because when you're, when you're dealing with technology uh, and you're pushing it as far as you can and you try to do things that nobody's done before, that happens a lot, a lot. With motion capture, you're, you're pushing a lot of data around. You're working with code that's pushing the, the hardware to its limits, you're trying new things, and uh, the thing that makes photography look real digitally is simulations. Whether you're si- ray tracing, where you're simulating the way that light bounces off of things, or simulating the way fur moves or water, and the thing that makes it look good is how complicated those simulations are. And so we're always, no matter how powerful the computers get, we're always pushing the software to take full advantage of it because to the artist's eyes there's always room to make something look more and more photoreal and to each generation we get used to the new technology and you have to come up with new technology to fool the audiences. When they showed Lost World done in stop motion uh, long before, uh, before King Kong even, people thought those were real dinosaurs and we look at it now it looks like something from a children's show because the audiences get more and more sophisticated. So uh, if you ever look at effects from a few years ago, sometimes they're charming uh, because they're so, like Harryhausen, even though it doesn't look real, it's still wonderful. And and my issue, honestly, with with CGI is if you don't do it right, it loses its charm too quick and dates the movie. 
Yeah. No, I mean, absolutely. And, and I mean, what's amazing, I mean, I wonder if you could talk a bit about how you chose the particular kind of photorealistic animation you have here, because um, obviously it sets it apart from, from you know, the, uh, the you know, 1967, The Jungle Book, which is a more traditional animation. Um, but, you know, how did you pick this particular kind of way of doing the story? It was just really getting the best artists and the best people and surrounding myself with people that were smarter than me. And just, I, I've always had a very good eye for talent, both in front of him, behind the camera. And uh, like a guy, Rob Legato, who I was, I, I would hang out with him just to pick his brain before we were ever working together, because he had done, you know, he had set up Avatar, he had done Titanic, worked with Scorsese on all of his recent uh, projects, like Hugo, which I thought was beautiful also. Uh, and it, just a really brilliant, smart guy with a, with a cinematic eye. You know, and then Bill Pope, who'd done, you know, Scott Pilgrim. The Matrix, and yeah, as well. Matrix, right? and, you know, was very comfortable, was, was uh, working on the, the, co the new Cosmos series with a lot of green screen. So people who were comfortable and not scared of technology. And I've been a bit of a Luddite. I've always been very gradual. Even on Elf, we did stop motion. We did, we did forced perspective. Uh, even on Zathura, we did uh, motion control miniatures like they did on the original Star Wars. So I've always really uh, loved the old, the, the, the technologies that were used when I was growing up. And then with Iron Man, we got into hard surfaces like metal. And I started to become convinced because I would give notes because we have a real suit for certain shots and we'd have a digital suit for certain shots. And... Uh, at one point, and I'm pretty meticulous, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I'm not mean about it, but I am, you know, I, I, I really try to inspire the best work out of people. I, I think we should, you know, it's, it's hard to, you don't want to give up on a shot. You want to just keep pushing it uh, to be the best you can. And I was given some notes on one of the shots and they politely interrupted me. The people from ILM and told me that's not actually not one of the digital shots. That's the, <laughs> that's the real suit. And, and at that point I knew that I was fooled where I couldn't even tell the difference between the two. And, and then I was, you know, it made me very proud of them, honestly. And I, and I laughed and I love it. I tell the story whenever I can, because it shows that there are, there is a tipping point for certain technologies. And then as I saw films like Avatar, Life of Pi, and most recently um, Planet of the Apes, I, I began to be convinced about organic surfaces to and fur. And that's when we started thinking about, can you do something interesting with this property 50 years after the animated version. Yeah, we always can ask a question about the process of like directing, you know, a voice, a voice actors, but also directing an actor who's going to be interacting with people, things that aren't there. I mean, what was the procedure for that here? Well, that's really the key. I mean, interactivity is the key to getting the effects right. And, and oftentimes when you're seeing effects that don't look good, it's because in the filmmaking process, not enough attention was paid to generating elements that the visual effects people can tie into. So it really demands that the, the writer, the director, the cinematographer really consider what post-production is going to be. And the first film that I saw that really felt like it, it broke to the next level of that was Gravity. When you see what was, you know, behind the scenes, it's very painstaking. It would be Sandra Bullock and she'd be in a gimbaled rig with lighting panels that would shift around, robotic light, uh, ro uh, held by robotic arms, and it looked like an assembly line of, a, of an auto factory. But really, you were just generating an element that was going to fit into a very specifically 
pre-planned shot with a light source, a background, and all those things considered. The things that normally aren't hammered out until much later, uh, usually in post-production, you don't really roll up your sleeves and make those tough decisions. And uh, what you shoot on the set dictates what they have to do. In the case of Gravity, it was determined ahead of time. And certain films do it to certain extents. I've never seen it that convincingly done for my, for my money. And we tried to uh, use that level of um, planning and involved visual effects in pre-production on the set. They were on equal footing to production. And the results that you see just make you forget they are visual effects. Right, definitely. Um, I, I can't resist. If, can I ask a question about, about that experience? Can we get a mic over, maybe? To, uh, to Neil. Oh, we can. <laughs> if you can project. I'll, I'll be like Donahue. <laughs> Donahue. Remember Donahue, Neil? No, you don't. <laughs> Yeah, so, so is this Neil said to you, please, Bogley in the movie. And, uh, so what was it like? Did he have you in like a, a rig of some sort? <laughs> yeah, it was a lot of fun. It looks really real, but it's really not. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, you had to be looking at something that wasn't there at times or that yeah. sort of thing? Well, yeah. they put puppets there. And um, that really helped me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he put puppets there. That was my idea. Oh, that's my, right. Genius. That, was my, that was my big idea. That It took a while to get them, but yeah. I said, we got to get an eye line that's not just an X or a person or a, somebody reading from a script. And I kept thinking with puppets, the kid's going to look at the... Kids always look at puppets. They don't look at the person. Mm -hmm. That's the problem. You put an X up there and I'll read with you. You're going to look at me. You don't look at the X. Mm -hmm. But you have a puppet. Um, then all of a sudden it's life is breathed into it. We could have spontaneity. Uh, Henson's company, Jim Henson's company designed them and we had puppeteers. They would improvise. I would change lines. They joke around with him. And so it's Neil's joking back and forth with either puppet. Sometimes it would be me, sometimes another actor. We always tried to keep that spark going because it's ultimately the humanity that sells the technical stuff, whether it's the humanity of the performer, the humanity of the, uh, the animator's hand, the, the humanity of the performance with uh, the stammers and the normal, the normal uh, conversational performance. Uh, but it's always, it's always the human element that you need to overcome the artifice of, of all of this, all these crazy technical aspects of a film. Yeah, yeah. Was it, was it, was it hard to, to, to keep a focus on all of that, you know? Not really. It was actually a lot easier. Okay. And um, he stole everything I was going to say. So. Okay. All right. Well, we won't make you stand here, but thanks so much. Thank you, Neil. <laughs> Thank you. Neil. Yeah. Thank you. And you can see why, why I picked him. Yes. <laughs> He's just fun to watch talk, answer questions, uh, audition. And everybody just really got a kick out of him. And, and we needed that type of energy at the center to make all that go away. And, and I never wanted to force the animals to do more than an animal would. And that means that to get the emotion, you can only do so many push-ins to get drama. You, got, you, need, you need an anchor to pivot on. And so without somebody who had that kind of quality, we would have had a very difficult time 
no matter how good the technical aspects were. Yeah, and, and yes, yeah, it's just amazing, lively spark at the center of almost every other scene. Uh, but it also helps to, you know, that you have such an impressive cast you assembled for voice actors like Bill Murray, for, for, you know, for one, and, and Idris Elba is the voice of Shere yeah. Khan. I mean, uh, what, what's, what was this your technique for directing them? I, I imagine that's kind of a bit different because, again, they're just kind of standing there. Well, I'm always looking, you know, being that my background is improvisation and independent film, I'm always looking for the opportunity to create spontaneity for accidents to happen, for unexpected choices to crash together and make something cool happen. You don't have to get a lot of those moments. You just need it. You need enough of them to, to make a few good scenes and, a, you know, and, and no bad scenes. You just need, you need something to, to uh, create a, a human, unexpected, spontaneous moment from time to time. And uh, with, with Iron Man, we... we uh, the planned visual effects were were left alone and then all the spontaneity came from multiple cameras improvisation with Robert and Gwyneth and Jeff Bridges and we, we you know we would we would encourage that in the scene work and then you'd cut to the you'd cut to the action and it's almost like you know two different sets it's like the old Teenage Mutant Ninja I mean the old uh, uh, Power Rangers right, yeah. <laughs> where you'd have a scene and then you'd have the effects the effects unit right. uh, and, and so, because you had to plan all that stuff way ahead of time, so you couldn't really mess around with it. You can mess with the dialogue that was laid over it, but, but you couldn't, you needed the whole pipeline, the whole length of, of uh, post-production. So for here, we need to create that spontaneity throughout, because there is no superheroes, there is no explosions. So it became about getting the right voice performance, and that meant Neil coming with me, with Bill Murray and, and them doing the dialogue and us having uh, capture data from multiple cameras on Bill Murray so that not only are we getting the voice performance, but we're also getting, for any take, we're, we're getting his eye contact rhythms, we're getting his, what his face is doing. And depending on which character, we either uh, boil that down to, to, to data that drove the rig or just vi really specific video reference for our animators to use when they keyframed it. Uh, but all of this, again, all that stuff you hear about motion capture, you hear about all these new technologies, it's, these are handmade films. These are just a different set of brushes and paints that are much uh, more um, photo real, but it's, it's hundreds of hours of artist time on every single shot that we go back and forth and do versions of to make it look like like nobody touched it. So the performances drive it, the spontaneity of the, of the actual recordings, and then finally on set, Neil had to do it again. He had to do it three times. He did it, we did pencils, like you would an animated film, show reels with a scratch track of all the voices. Then we did a full motion capture shoot like Avatar for where we place the cameras and how we uh, block the whole thing and refining the set design. Then finally, after that was all done, we took every shot with Mowgli in it built small cookie cutter sets that would, was cut out from the digital set and built whatever he touched or whatever cast a shadow on him and he had to perform the whole thing again on film in hair and makeup and that's, and that's in costume and that's when we had the puppeteers to keep it alive. So he became a, a journeyman uh, screen actor on this right. uh, nine month process. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a full workout. <laughs> yeah. 
I mean, and, and all of this really shows when you, when you see, the, see the film because, I mean, especially the 3D, it, it just feels so vivid and has actual depth, you know, and real clarity. Uh, it, you know, you can tell the difference. Um, and we captured uh, 3D native. We, uh, I, I, I felt when I saw Avatar uh, that that felt like, okay, I get why I'm going to a movie theater to see it in 3D. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you don't always feel that way. Some films are converted poorly. Some are converted well. Um, and the best conversions are pretty convincing, actually. But but you can't count on that. And it also cuts off your time at the end of the schedule when you need it most. But Avatar was captured native. They used the pace rig that, that was developed by Jim Cameron. And they actually had, you know, you got a 3D image that you could look at right there on the set. We use that camera system. We use Simulcam that, that Cameron developed. A lot of the stuff we use was building on the successes and innovations of other people and using an interesting different combination. Yeah. Um, I also just want to, you know, jump back in your own career, which, you know, dates, you know, you know into independent film. And I'm just kind of curious because, you know, you have this meticulous deta detail for, the, for these larger films. I mean, what, what do you bring from that history of, uh, you know, independent filmmaking to, to what you do now? I mean... I think it's understanding the, the, the importance of casting. Mm -hmm. I think that any film that I've done that's technical really comes down to it doesn't it doesn't seem like it because the the technical part parts the most interesting because it's the newest thing. But Iron Man is Robert. I mean that's what made that movie. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think this one same thing Neil and the and the and the voice performers. That's what that's what makes you feel something because if you don't feel something. If you don't connect in a human way to to, to film, that that's what it's a, it's a feeling medium. It's not a. It's this is all into. It's nice to talk about because that's what my life's been about for the last three years. But the fact is it, it, that all of this has to conspire to make the audience scared, happy, relieved, you know, uh, or moved on some level. It's a, it's an emotional. It's an emotional medium. Yeah. And uh, we'll go to questions in, in, in just, a, just a second. But I just wanted to, to ask about the, the kind of writing of, of the film. Uh, because one thing I really liked about it is how you get the personalities of all the animals uh, are also pretty, you know, well-defined. And you get a real sense of animal wiles. I feel like, like every animal has his own little strategy or technique for dealing with things. So if you could talk yeah. a bit about that. Well, a lot of that's from Justin Marks, the writer, uh, who worked very hard and was involved with this before I was when it was much closer to the Kipling version. And then as I brought in my love for the, the Disney tradition as well, um, who would think working for Disney that the filmmaker you bring on is pushing you more towards Disney? But I was definitely on that end of the equation and we, we struck a balance between what existed in the Kipling and, and Kipling was very good at defining each each set of of animals and and then if you read into the writing there are there's subtext to all of it and justifications so like the treatment of the of, of the elephant characters and this is much different than the silly set pieces in the in the musical version uh you know we really gravitated to the kipling where they're viewed as almost like gods on earth and yeah, they, they created the forest them. they bow before them and 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 being interested in that ended up us leaving, leading us to other plot points that weren't in either um, story. But by finding a combination of tone that honored both references and also honor, honored other uh, classic Disney, you know, not just Lion King, which was certainly was a, a nice, uh, um, nice to be able to look at for, for the way they dealt with tone and similar subject matter, uh, but also the big five. So like when they're, you know, that's a, that's a Disney trick there. You have, you know, in that scene in Snow White 
when the dwarves are crying and, and they think that they think that Snow White's gone and and that the real turning point honestly for the studio because they never thought you could have a feature length animated film let alone one where people tear up but when they cut outside all the animals who aren't crying are in the rain and the rain is pouring down and you know it's a cinematic device that that uh, Disney was clever enough to use and it's and to be able to control the entire environment allows you to do things that you just don't have the time or money to do certainly in the smaller films I've done anytime I've written rain it's like really <laughs> Because we could, first we, thing could to go. <laughs> we could save a day with the machines and the, oh it's so hard with the camera, and and I let them talk me out of it most of the time. I don't I think I've used rain once in my whole career. Uh, same thing with wind, howling wind. You know, you look at you look at what the masters do. You look at Kurosawa. There's wind. There's rain. There's all sorts of things happening, and it and it brings the but it's. You know, because he was that kind of maestro where he he had the whole, you know, he was he was the captain of a ship. And and it was at a time when, you know, he was in, in, in his top form and and all the things that that we sometimes avoid because of because of the challenges of the economics of the film business. You know, you see when the masters do it and they they don't unflinchingly go for it. It just brings such power and, and using these techniques like there's a shot in here that shot it at Magic Hour. Now, anytime I've written the break of dawn, the AD says in the first meeting, okay, is that day or night? Which do you want? Because <laughs> you, you get 12 hours of only one of those. You don't get, mm -hmm. you, unless you're Terrence Malick and you're going to be out there waiting to get years one shot years off or, years. or with Chivo and on Revenant or, you know, you have to be a certain, you have to have a certain type of stomach to be able to push it that far to get that level of artistry. I just don't, I'm not built that way. I, I, I just, I'm, I'm, I'm too pragmatic. But we have a whole sequence in here that's just as dawn is breaking in and emotionally services the scene. And, and it's so wonderful working with the visual effects supervisor and with, uh, with, with our uh, uh, cinematographer as we establish the lighting on the set and we look at tests of what it's going to look like. And it's just something you don't normally get to do. So it is like you're playing with a whole new, you know, yeah. a whole new train set here. Yeah, uh, questions from the audience? Uh, in the back, please. All right. Um, how you doing? Um, I'm a huge fan of your work. Thank you. Um, you know, really inspiring as a filmmaker, as an actor myself. It's great to watch your, your, your material. Um, okay. Let me try to be succinct. Um, given your relationship with Disney, um, I'm just curious about any conversations maybe about you taking on some of the Star Wars franchise material, <laughs> perhaps a solo, like, you know, I th I'm hearing about like maybe you and McGregor coming back to play Obi-Wan. I personally think that you'd just be perfect for, for one of those movies, uh, one of the spinoffs. So uh, and if I can, just like a second part of that question uh, is, I know that there's another version of the Jungle Book uh, being developed by Andy Serkis, also involved with Star Wars. So I'm just, have you spoken to him or I talked to Andy Serkis uh, before he was hired to do the the, the other uh, uh, Jungle Book and and he and I uh, go back we know each other it's a small town and he said it you know and I we both smiled because it was before any of this started years ago fortunately there's enough space between them there's now I think now two years between the, the films so everything changes that's that's a that's a huge amount of time uh, it, it I've uh, yeah, I don't know where, you know, he's doing his thing. I don't know. I'm sure he's, he's, he definitely understands the technology because he's been involved in some of the most ambitious technical achievements and work with other great filmmakers. So, 
you know, it's, you don't know till you see. Um, but I'm, you know, I think that there's, I've been involved with a lot of projects where as an actor, uh, where it's like a foot race where you're both, you know, uh, I was in deep impact and, and then Armageddon's the same, like within a few, like that's when I think it's, I think that's, um, short sighted because n- neither wins. Uh, but now everybody could win. Everybody could do their thing. As far as the Star Wars stuff goes, I'm a huge fan. I was very nervous about it happening at all because I grew up and it was such an important thing to me and, and, and really opened the door for my, to me to look into Joseph Campbell and learn about mythic storytelling and the Hero of a Thousand Faces. And, and Star Wars opened the door for me to Kurosawa. Everything... All of my sophistication came through that little portal, which just seemed like entertainment just for me as a young kid. And so the, the, the level of thoughtfulness that Lucas uh, infused that series with was inspiring to a young John Favreau as I, and, and then I looked to his sources and learned more and more, and American Graffiti. I mean, you look at American Graffiti, we had in, in Swingers, we had a reference to a reference, a reference to a reference to a movie. My license plate on on uh, on the car on on uh, Trent's car said THX 138, which was the license plate on the car in American Graffiti, which is a reference to the first film Lucas did. So we did a reference inside a reference inside a reference uh, because I thought so highly of of that film of American Graffiti, which really set I think I I, I know I've stolen from in ways I don't even remember. Uh, so I think that franchise, the Star Wars franchise, is very important. I know J.J. very well. I was very relieved to know it was in his hands and that he, because if there's anybody who loves Star Wars and understands it even more than me, it's that guy. And I think he successfully brought it to a new generation. I can't wait to see what these other filmmakers are going to do. And, and I'm hearing only wonderful things from people on the inside who are getting little little taste of things. So between the Star Wars universe, the Marvel universe, I think this infusion of new, excited, enthusiastic filmmakers is going to help bring fresh inspiration to these old stories and these old archetypes and these heroes' journeys again. Uh, but what a great time to be in Hollywood for me. I get to visit the set of, I went from the set of, now I could talk about it because it's all out. I went from the set of Star Wars to the set of the Aveng- uh, Age of Ultron, like in London, <laughs> from one set to the other. And I, you know, I still feel like I did when I was buying copies of Starlog magazine. It's great. Yeah. Hi, my name is April, and um, I'm curious to know what you did, if anything, with the content from the original movie. The Disney films have so much sort of family um, impact and a lot of adoption. So I wondered if there was anything that you uh, did differently or thought about differently in the modern version? Well, I think each, uh, the modern version, you know, what, what's nice about um, this property is it was done 100 years ago and there was, with one, with one context, with the Kipling, it was done 50 years ago with a whole other set of, a whole other context and a completely different tone, but still following the same myth. And that myth goes way back before Kipling even. It goes back to, you know, the, the kid raised by wolves. That's, that's Romulus and Remus. That's, that's part of, that's one of those that when uh, Campbell talks about, there are certain myths that, that pop up in every culture, that's one of them. So you're dealing with the old, the deep stuff that's running through that Jungian weird river that I don't understand, but I definitely respect and, and, and dip into whenever possible because it's strong, it's strong stuff for, from a storyteller's perspective. 
Um, and so what's the story for our age? How does it, how do we change it each, you know, we, we, uh, there were no female characters in the 67. That's not, that's not now, you know, so make Ka the snake who's different in both versions. Why not make it a third version here and also serve the story device, uh, serve a different device of presenting exposition and, and, and learning about Mowgli's character as opposed to just hypnotizing him to set up the next beat like in the, the other one. So, so look for opportunities that may, might not have been taken before. Bring, um, uh, Raksha, the character Lupita was voicing here, that was a very important character in the Kipling, wasn't that important in the, in the other one. So you really get to pick and choose and figure out, and then of course you bring the new tech into it. You, and that, that updates it, just like me watching Star Wars. I was into it, I wasn't into I didn't want to think about archetypes. I was watching, this is cool, you know, these are great, sp these spaceships look so real with all the motion control miniature work they were doing. And that's how, you, that's how you trick the kids into paying attention. But really, you're telling them the stories. And then as you get older, it's the stories you love. And the, the tech becomes fun. And the tech comes, that's the magic trick. But really, you know, the magi this is a magician's tradition. And you, you look at a guy like Ricky Jay. When he does a card trick, he tells you a whole story about the riverboat gamblers and about this and that. So it's, that, it's, that, it's the storytelling part of it that's the real to me, the real magic, and all the rest of it, that's just, this is all people who are working really hard practicing uh, cutting to the ace over and over again, but it's the story that, that I think makes this, a, that's why we're all here, that's why we go to the movies, we love that thing, that tradition, we like to sit around the campfire, and everybody does it in a different way, uh, and, and I'm just incredibly fortunate to be at a moment when that story hasn't been told in a while, we could tell it again, uh, but there's always talk about why tell it again. And by the way, when Walt Disney did it, he didn't pick new stories. He went to the folklore, the fairy tales, and he figured, how could I use all of this new stuff to take those old stories and tell it to a new generation? Uh, so it, 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 I feel like I'm part of a tradition, and, it's, and, and just in promoting this and talking about it, it's, it's made me more aware of it. And as I have kids now, and we introduce them to these stories, then it, it, it almost feels like a parenting. It's part of that. That's why, that's why people bring their kids to Disneyland. That's why you show them Snow White. That's why you show them the movies, you, Star Wars, the movies you loved, is because you're passing that thing on to them. And as they get older, you show them Godfather. And that's, <laughs> you know what I mean? And that's why we're here. That's why there's a film society, because we love, we all, we share that love. We share that love. Oh, uh, Back here. I, I, it's, it's a perfect way to end, but there's another question. That's all right. <laughs> in the front, in the front. <laughs> Oh, we got, Hi. We got Hi. oh I'm sorry, the microphone's up there. Okay, oh, both, okay. It's great. Hi, huge fan. So um, when and where did you grow up in Queens, and how did that whole upbringing influence what you are today? You had what, to bring up Queens. I had to bring <laughs> up Queens. <laughs> I'm finally in the city. I grew up in Queens. <laughs> now I live uh, here. But um, so what are the struggles you faced from coming from there to... From coming from Queens? From New York uh, to Hollywood. <laughs> people made fun of me in Chicago when I lived there for my accent. Uh, I, I like, uh, it was, look, we all have our, we all have our, um, wherever we're from is burnt into who we are and those images pop up. Um, Disney certainly with Marceline, uh, you know, the small town background of him, me, I'm, I'm from Queens. I'm from, you know, you look at, you look at Iron Man 2, we needed a fictitious, backdrop and that was the Stark Expo. What was the Stark Expo? It was 
the World's Fair that I, I was born in 66 and I grew up in a building called the Fairview across the street from the World's Fairgrounds. And I never got to see the World's Fair and I grew up my whole life looking out my window on the 12th story looking at this, this empty park that was beautiful but there were no real indication of what, was, what I had always heard was there except the Unisphere which is now my logo and my company's name's Fairview. So we all have our rosebuds, you know what I mean? And if you look at the end of, if you look at the end of Iron Man 2, one, we had to set that, and we created the Stark Expo on those fairgrounds. So we used the plates of Flushing Meadow Park, and ILM built a fictitious expo for our period. And so as that set piece is going on, for me the big thrill is that's, that's, the par that's, what could, that's the fantasy version of what the park was, or the World's Fair. And, and the last shot where they're um, at the end of Iron Man 2, when, when Pepper and, and Tony are on after the big battle and everything's in flames, I said, oh, you may as well shoot the plate from, I gave him the address of my old apartment building. <laughs> and so when that, that foreground is, is Iron Man, the background's the view from my window growing up, in flames, and I didn't even realize it. I see the movie for the first time when the effects are done. It's like this weird. I just said arbitrarily, "Oh, why not be there? That'll be fun." And then, and then next thing I know, I'm watching the view from my window in childhood with everything burning, and it was, it was just a very surreal moment where your subconscious is screaming something at you, and you realize it. So I don't know what it represents, but but it, but clearly, growing up in Queens had something to do with it. <laughs> <laughs> and then you wanted to burn it all down. <laughs> um, I love Queens. <laughs> I worked at the RKO Keith's. Anybody remember that in Queens and Flushing? You do? On Northern Boulevard? Yeah. I was an usher there in high school. Oh, in wow. one of the old movie palaces. Oh. Talking to the old projectionists up there. Watching uh, Return of the Jedi, I think, was there when I worked there. And So I've always loved, I've always loved movies. And, 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 and certainly New York and, 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 and more specifically Queens is, is in my bones. Yeah, yeah. Um, we have time for, well, sure, uh, the, over here, please. Um, so I have a question about the trailer for The Jungle, for the jungle Book. <laughs> Hopefully you'll see it at the end here. <laughs> um, so uh, so in, the, in the trailer when I saw it, I kind of got the impression that it was trying to be advertised as a suspenseful movie. So just kind of have a question about that, like why... Um, uh, why is it kind of have a bunch of these action shots when Jungle Book's kind of like a heartwarming story? Well, I think uh, what they do uh, when, they present, when they present material, they do it, especially a company like Disney that's just particularly, particularly uh, skillful at telling that story over the course of many, many weeks or months. Um, there's different, different times for different parts, and depending on what you're trying to, if you're trying to get attention, it tends to be quicker cuts, images, beauty shots. And as we get closer and closer to the release, you'll see there's more of the emotional content. Once people are invested in, once their curiosity's peaked, you can start to have a little bit more um, patience with the storytelling, even in the form of trailers or clips that are released. It's the nature of our, our moment right now. There's so much content out there, uh, which I think is a good thing. But people are making content on their phones. They're, making, they're posting it themselves. There's amazing stuff on television including, uh, you know, uh, stuff that would have been on films that are now on, on cable, pay cable, basic cable, streaming. It's coming at you from all ends, and there are audiences for all of it, and audiences are demanding quality, and, 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 the, and the market is rising 
to, to, to meet that. And so uh, as you get to releasing a film and it's a crowded marketplace, and there are only so many weekends that can bear films that need people to show up uh, in the numbers that help make it make financial sense. There's a lot of competition for eyeballs everywhere and in the streets. And as I go around New York with the build, these beautiful billboards that are moving, that are having little cinematic experiences on them. It it reminds me of when I saw Blade Runner and you see the movie, you know, it looked like something from the far, far future. But in fact, you're seeing, you know, you're seeing, you're seeing content everywhere. And, um, and so you, I think part of, part of it is making a, a movie that, that, that feels like it could have been made, you know, many years ago. Uh, and part of it is also getting a new generation to see that and drawing their attention to draw them into that, to even have a chance to, to make the case and, and, and tell your story. Uh, I loved your reference about all of us having our rosebuds. Um, <laughs> and I grew up in India, so that's a huge part of who I am. And um, I remember initially when I was really young, I watched The Jungle Book, the older movie, and I definitely took for granted how much of India was in the movie. And mm -hmm. I think Ruyard Kipling uh, did intend for it to be um, sort of a subtle but huge part of the movie. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering uh, how much of that is in your movie. Well, there's a, and we wanted to be authentic to, to, the, to the setting. And uh, that was an opportunity to change what the 67 film was because it's it's there it's implied but it's all a little more stylized and we wanted to use the real flora the real fauna which and, and which got us into problems with with king louis because that's not in the kipling and there's no orangutans in india and so we're like how do we do this how do you but it's but yet it's a memorable element of the movie i grew up with and that's how we um thanks to i believe it was chris glass our production designer in doing research and i think Research is very important for me as a storyteller. It inspires a lot of ideas. Uh, the team from MPC that did uh, most of the effects in the film were there for months and documenting and taking reference and, and for textures and lighting and the plant life. Uh, and plus you have the internet, which is a, a huge resource. But, but uh, Chris Glass in doing research found a creature called the Gigantopithecus that has been extinct for tens of thousands of years that lived in that part of the world. There are remains that have been found, so it really did exist, just not anymore. And they were from like nine to 12, maybe even taller, feet tall. And their closest living relative is the orangutan. And we started thinking, well, a giant version with this technology, and then we thought of Weta and what they did with King Kong and Planet of the Apes, and now all of a sudden, the ideas start going. And we wanted to make it not really, we didn't want to just take the G-rated musical made for kids and do it photo real. That felt odd to us. So we decided to make a PG version that had a bit more thrills and, and to demonstrate that uh, and to have set pieces that can really be a little bit more adventure action oriented. And so once we came, uh, we thought about Christopher Walken, then we started thinking about how do you introduce him? And we were thinking about Apocalypse Now at like the end of the... So when you see it, there's a lot of Storaro influence in the reveal of this character. And, uh, you know, for the parents, the kids will like it too. They'll just be a little scared. Uh, but then you also have a quirky character who's also menacing. And, and that's how we, we landed there. So sometimes your research and trying to give yourself parameters for authenticity actually inspire a completely different set of ideas. It's not always a, a limitation. Sometimes it could open you up to, to fresh new things, and that's what you yearn for.
Yeah. And, and Christopher Walken also introduces this kind of musical element just in his delivery uh, automatically. Yeah. yeah, it's great. He's, got, he's, got, he's definitely got a rhythm to the way he performs. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I'm afraid that's all the time we have. Though. April 15th. And, 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 and those of you who are around Midtown, there's a, this is the first film to be released. There's a lot of great formats to see this in. IMAX is exciting, especially if you could find one with laser projection. It's pretty exciting in IMAX. But there's also uh, another uh, format called Adobe Vision 3D, and one of the three theaters that's showing it in the in the in the country in 3D in high dynamic range. And Dolby Vision is, I believe, it's the Emp, uh, the AMC it's Empire. Forty second. Yeah. Okay. Uh, if you're if you're you're all cinephiles, it's you know, and there's a lot of wonderful stuff being done on celluloid, and you can't argue that that's a beautiful, beautiful medium. But to see state-of-the-art digital, where there was no film, everything was done digitally, rendered digitally, projected digitally, in high dynamic range with deep, deep blacks, beautiful contrast and bright whites, and, and your glasses disappear. Uh, it's, we, we have it at the El Capitan back in, in Hollywood. There's, a, there's one in, in Illinois, and then here's that other theater. It's worth checking out because this is a new technology that's coming that's, that's pushing the limits on the other end of the spectrum. So uh, it's, it's, as a filmmaker, it's very exciting. So it's worth, it's worth mentioning here. There you go. Uh, John Favreau, thank you so much. Thank you. The Close-Up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center is produced by Nick Kemp and Michael Odemark. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe to The Close-Up on iTunes and Stitcher. The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City, supported by individuals just like you. Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, the Film Society presents year-round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work, and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do and support the Film Society by becoming a member, please visit filmlink.org. F-I-L-M-L-I-N-C dot org. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here.